0: Take our Bibles and turn back to the book of Acts this evening. We won't mention the individual who just walked in and sat down in the back after the guys were done singing. Acts chapter 13 this evening as we continue in our series in the book of Acts looking at the different sermons that are being preached as we try to understand the gospel, as well as different ways of being able to share similar truths. But depending on who we are speaking with, uh, the situation may call for a different approach. We've looked at the life of the early church so far. Things have changed quite a bit uh, from when we left off. The gospel has spread from Jerusalem. We looked in Acts chapter 2 at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Acts chapter 3, Peter at the gate beautiful after healing the lame man. We looked in Acts chapter 7, Stephen and his martyrdom. In Acts chapter 8, the gospel spreads to Samaria with Philip. And then Peter and John confirming that the Holy Ghost has been given to those Samaritans. And last week, we looked at the gospel as it has then begun to go out to the Gentiles, looking at the story of Peter and Cornelius. Luke is shifting the focus of the book of Acts from the church in Jerusalem to the church at Antioch. And from Acts chapter 13 on really, Luke follows the journeys of one missionary that the church at Antioch sends forth, an individual named Paul. We're familiar with him and his story. He was Saul, Saul who persecuted the church, Saul who did his very best to wipe out Christianity. Saul, who was there at the stoning of Stephen, who oversaw it, and the scriptures tell us held the coats of those who stoned Stephen, who knew the truth, and yet rejected it time and time again. And God, in his mercy towards Saul, didn't let up. We see Saul coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord, and from that point on, everything that Saul had already known, he now was applying to his life and giving the gospel to others. And because he knew all of the arguments that he had had against the gospel, he now knows better how to deal with those arguments because he's had to wrestle with them himself. In Acts chapter 13, we see Paul going on his first missionary journey. In chapter 13, verse 5, when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And while they were there, the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, desired to hear the word of God. In verse 12, he then ends up believing the message, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. And Paul, as he's preaching and giving the gospel, those first areas where he goes, Luke just simply records what he's teaching and preaching is God's word. It's not the word of man. You know, when we share the gospel with others, when God brings people across our paths for us to be able to share the gospel with them, giving the gospel is not me trying to eloquently communicate a man's message. Sharing the gospel with others is giving the word of God. And that's where the power comes from. Because as an individual, I may be able to get myself emotionally hyped up, I may be able to paint a beautiful picture with my words. But the power of the gospel is not based on the one giving the gospel. The power of the gospel is based on the one from whom the gospel comes, and that is God. And oftentimes, one of the things that may hinder us from sharing the gospel with others is the fact that, what if I say the wrong word? What if I don't get it just right? I don't know the scriptures enough, or I I might stammer, or I, I I might... And we come up with all of these reasons why we can't give the gospel, because of us, but it's not our words, it's the words of the Lord, and that's where the strength is, and that's where the power is. Paul's custom on his missionary journeys is to go into each town, and town by town, he goes into the synagogue. There he then gives the gospel, and ironically, you know, you see Paul going to all of these towns Luke only records one sermon that Paul preaches in a synagogue when he goes to many. And this message that Paul gives in Acts chapter 13 is going to sound familiar to Peter's message proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. It's going to sound familiar to Stephen's message reviewing Israel's history because the message of the gospel doesn't change. There may be different words that we use depending on to whom we are speaking, but the gospel message is the same. And we see in Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 14, They departed from Perga, and they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up, and beckoning with his hand said men of Israel and ye that fear God give audience listen up in the jewish synagogues it was required for there to be at least 10 male Jews and although each synagogue would do things slightly differently there was a usual standard order of procedures a general liturgy is followed beginning with the recitation of the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. There would then be scripture readings from both the law, the Pentateuch, and the prophets. Prayers and thanksgivings would be offered, and then an explanation of the texts that had just been read, similar to, you know, what we have here. We have prayers, we have songs, we have the reading of God's word, and then an explanation of God's word. Based on what Paul is going to say, there's a possibility that the law that was read would have been Deuteronomy chapter 4, The prophets coming from 2 Samuel 7, looking at the fact that Israel's exodus and entry into the promised land was based on God's covenant love, not because of any goodness in Israel, and then also looking at the Davidic covenant. The rulers of the synagogue were oftentimes just lay leaders who had the general oversight of the synagogue and oversight of the discipline. And they would choose who would do the reading and who would do the explanation. And Paul is given this opportunity to speak. Now, I don't know that this is a regular occurrence today if somebody were to just come in off the street for a pastor to say, hey, why don't you preach tonight? So they had to have known a little bit about Paul knowing where he came from. He had come from Jerusalem, recognizing the fact that he was a rabbi, possibly recognizing that he had been trained by one of the greatest minds in Jerusalem, Gamaliel. So because of Paul's background, because of how Paul was raised, that gives him an opportunity to share the gospel. Now, sometimes we may think that because I don't have a college education or because I have a blue-collar job or because I didn't get past the eighth grade I can't share the gospel but God has given each of us the opportunity based on how we've grown up based on our experiences to be able to reach individuals that others cannot reach you have the opportunity at work to rub shoulders with co-workers that I or Pastor Betrie don't have the opportunity to do. Or wherever you are in your circle of influence, God has placed you there for a unique opportunity to be able to reach those individuals that someone else may not be able to do. Because of Paul's training, Paul is able then... And given this opportunity to explain the scriptures that were just read. And Paul starts in verse 16 going through verse 25 giving a review of salvation history. He stands up, beckons with his hand, and then calls the audience to listen. Men of Israel speaking to the Jews who would have been there And ye that fear God, the God-fearers, we saw these last week. This was a term used to describe Cornelius. Gentiles who would have been attracted to the Jewish faith, who would have worshipped Israel's gods, attended the synagogue, and may have even followed parts of the Torah. And then Paul goes and gives a history from the patriarchs to David. Starting in verse 17, the God of this people of Israel chose our fathers. Israel was not a special people because of her own innate goodness. Israel is not a special people because of her superior spirituality. Israel was God's special people because God chose them to be so. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 37 through 38. Moses records, and because he, God, loved thy fathers, who were the fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because God made a covenant with them, therefore he chose their seed after them and brought thee out in his sight and with his mighty power out of Egypt to drive out nations from before thee greater and mightier than thou art, and to bring thee in, to give thee their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Why did God get Israel out of Egypt? Why did God bring them to the promised land? Because of the covenant that he made with their fathers. And God is a covenant-keeping God. When he makes a statement, when he makes a promise he will keep that promise. Paul reminds them of Israel in Egypt and in during the Exodus in verse 17. God not only brought them out, but he exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an high arm brought he them out of it. God exalted Israel despite of her circumstances. Despite the fact that Israel was a nation in slavery, We see Israel had entered Egypt as a tribe of about 70. And when they leave, they are a nation with a lot more than 70 people, even though they were oppressed. And when they left, they left Egypt with Egypt's wealth. Their neighbors basically saying, take all of our gold, take our jewelry, take it and go. Get out of here before your God destroys us any further. God brought Israel out of her slavery with great power. In Exodus chapter 6, God tells Moses, Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments, and I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God brought them out with his mighty power. While this reference of God's mighty power alludes back to the exodus and the freeing of Israel from their slavery, it also points forward to the mighty power that God demonstrates when he raises his son from the dead, as Paul will address later in his message. He reminds them of Israel in the wilderness in verse 18. And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness, For 40 years, God put up with the wonderful attitudes that the Israelites had, full of gratefulness for all that he had done for them. Well, he did put up with it, but 40 years of griping, 40 years of complaining, 40 years of wishing to go back to Egypt, 40 years of turning their back on God, 40 years of rejecting God's leader, Moses. I don't know about you, but I don't think I can put up with a people for 40 years that are going to do that. Maybe 40 minutes. And yet God put up with their griping and their complaining for 40 years why because of the covenant love that he has towards abraham because he made abraham a promise that was based on his character god fulfilled that promise and fast forward to the gospel our salvation is not based on anything we can do but it's based on a promise that he gives based on himself and his son. God acted according to his covenant, and so too he is going to carry out his purposes in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, despite the lack of understanding and opposition from Israel. And Paul brings them then, in verse 19, into the promised land. Verse 19, when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. The Seven nations as are listed in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivite, Jebusites. All of these nations that are stronger than Israel, that were fortified in the land, from a human perspective, there's no way Israel should have conquered the promised land. There's no way they should have gone in and taken it as quickly as they did, if even at all. But they did because God had made a promise to Abraham. And God fulfills his word. They received their inheritance Verse 20, during that time he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. You know, when the Israelites got out of the wilderness and into the promised land, that griping and complaining and the turning from God didn't stop. It continued. You think, man, 40 years. I don't know if I could handle that. The time of the judges was about 450 years of Israel continuing to fall away from God, to turn away from God, to reject God, and then God would bring in an oppressing nation, at which point they would then repent, and God would send a judge to be the savior of his people, to lead them from their bondage, to deliver them. The military leaders who liberated Israel from her enemies, who provided guidance for the people, But the pattern that we see is when the judge would die, Israel went back to their own way. As it's summed up several times in the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You know, we look at the world around us. We look at the lack of morality. We look at the sins that are rampant. What's going on? There is no king and everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. But that doesn't keep God from working in Israel. The judges were referred to oftentimes as deliverers or saviors. When the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer, Judges 3, 9, to the children of Israel. Verse 15 of Judges 3, when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer. And Paul is bringing this in, emphasizing and preparing the minds because as he wraps things up, he's going to point out the fact that just as God brought up a judge to be the Savior slash deliverer, God sent his son to be the capital S Savior, capital D, deliverer of his people he brings up the reign of saul verse 21 afterward they desired a king and god gave unto them saul the son of kish a man of the tribe of benjamin by the space of 40 years Uh, why did israel get a king because it was they again that they rejected god's plan for them God's plan was for Israel to be a theocracy, but instead they look around, they see the other nations, and they see the other nations with a physical ruler, and they said, we want to be like that. We want a king, and God says, okay, fine, I'll give you what you want. And Saul is the perfect choice. 1 Samuel chapter 9 verse 2 describes Saul as a choice young man and a goodly. Okay, he was a good-looking guy. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. Okay, no one was better-looking than Saul. But not only was he good-looking, from his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. He was tall. He's someone that the crowd would have been able to point to, and the Israelites would have been able to say, look at our king, look how tall he is, look how strong he is, look how good-looking he is. But all of that is based on the outward appearance. We see Saul being removed from his office because of disobedience to God. And in verse 22, we get the appointment of King David. When he had removed him, when God had removed Saul, he raised unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave their testimony. And these are God's words. He said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Paul is using here the word raised To describe David's ascent to the throne. We get to verses 30 and 37. He uses that same word raised. To describe Christ's resurrection. Underlying David's role as the model ruler sent by God. Who was faithful to his divine calling. Paul describes David as having been found. Or having been chosen by God. Referring back to Psalm 89 verse 20, I have found David my servant. Psalm 89 the psalmist is calling on God to honor his covenant with David in a situation where David's descendants have incurred God's wrath written at a point in Israel's kingdom where the kings have rejected God and things are not looking bad and the psalmist is crying out to God, remember your promise to David. Keep that covenant. Paul describes David as being a man after God's own heart. When you first read that, you go, absolutely, David was a man after God's own heart. But then when you look into David's life, you know, arrogance, an adulterer, a murderer. You know, if we had someone here who fit that category, we would probably not want to be around that individual And yet David, who fits this characteristics, is described as being a man after God's own heart. Why? Because when David is confronted with those sins, how does he respond? It's a big difference between David and Saul. Saul, when he was confronted of his sins, basically shrugged it off. No big deal. But David, when he is confronted, what does he do? He recognizes it and repents Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Or Psalm 38, 18, I will declare mine iniquity, I will be sorry for my sin. Or probably the most famous in Psalm 51, verse 4, Against thee. Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. See, David is not an individual who is perfect. Yet he was an individual when sin was pointed out, demonstrated true repentance. True sorrow. And Paul goes and he gives a history of Israel. And in verse 23... As he's beginning to wrap things up, he says the fulfillment of all of God's promises are wrapped up in one man. Of this man's seed, of David's seed, hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Jesus is the one whom God has provided as the Savior in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. Or in Psalm 132, verse 11, the Lord hath sworn in truth unto David. God made David a promise and he will not turn from it. When God makes a promise, he keeps his word. He honors it. In Isaiah 11, verse 10, in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign to the people to it shall the gentiles seek and his rest shall be glorious this promised one that to david this promised king was not just a king for israel but also a king for the gentiles and all who find their hope in him shall find rest Paul's inclusion of Israel in Jesus' coming, as well as in John's preaching in the next verse, brings the listener back to the beginning of the speech in verse 17. The God of this people of Israel. Bringing back, hey, these are the promises specifically God has made for Israel. Why is he bringing that up? Because he's in a synagogue preaching mainly Israel. Verses 24 and 25, Paul reminds them of the proclamations of John the Baptist. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose." John's message of repentance was the precursor to Christ's message of the kingdom being at hand. John called people to repent, to be baptized as a demonstration of their repentance, confession of their sin, and turning from their wickedness. John's message was for all of Israel, both to the devout law-abiding Jews as well as those who did not care about God's law. And what was John's message? He was preaching that the promised Messiah was about to appear. During this time, there was an expectance of the Messiah. In Luke chapter 3, Luke records in verses 15 and 16, and as the people were in expectation... The people hearing the messages of John being prepared for the coming Messiah. And all men mused in their hearts of John whether he were the Christ or not. John answered, saying unto all of them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. And John's message pointing forward to Christ. And Paul finishes the first section of his message and he gets to the second section, verses 26 through 37, in which he brings things home, proclaiming the significance of Jesus. Verse 26, Paul reminds them of the revelance of the gospel for them. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham and whosoever among you feareth God to you, is the word of this salvation sent? What is Paul doing as he's wrapping things up? He's bringing the application home. He's saying this message is for you. The you that is sitting in your seat, this is for you. Well, sometimes when some, a pastor is preaching and he's preaching on something, we may think, oh man, I sure hope so-and-so is listening because they really need this. Paul saying, you all need this. The message of the gospel, the good news, is for everyone. Directly bringing the message home. He reminds them of the execution of Jesus in verses 27 through 29. They that dwelt at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. Though they found no cause of death in him, yet they desired, or yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the sepulchre. The rulers, those who should have been the experts in the Old Testament, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the priests, should have recognized who Jesus was. But instead they rejected him. Just as the scriptures prophesied, they knew him not, they failed to understand that Jesus was the Savior of Israel. Jesus was the Savior through whom God had fulfilled all of the promises to the fathers. You know, this brings to my mind Stephen's sermon where he goes, and which of the prophets haven't your fathers killed? You know, which of God's deliverers Did Israel as a nation actually listen to? Rejected Joseph, you rejected Moses, you rejected the prophets, and now you rejected God's Son. They knew him not, they condemned him. They convicted and sentenced him to death, but their condemnation was a direct fulfillment of the Scriptures. The Old Testament prophesies of his death in Isaiah 53, verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. The prophets clearly taught that Jesus the Messiah was going to die. That he would be buried in a tomb He made his grave, Isaiah 53, verse 9, with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Do you know what was typically done to a victim of crucifixion? Their bodies were just tossed into a mass grave. Crucifixion was reserved for a specific crime, rebellion against Rome. And when you have a rebel... You don't give them a grave that they could be honored in. And yet Christ was executed on the cross. And contrary to what should have happened, he was put in the tomb. Paul reminds them that the Old Testament said that they would not find any basis for the death sentence. As Jesus was tried six times with nothing being able to be brought against him. One may see that and say, oh, Jesus' execution was just an unfortunate miscarriage of justice. But what Paul is saying is Jesus' execution is so much more than that. It is the fulfillment of what had been prophesied. God's sovereign plan was being worked out by those who shook their fists in God's face. But Jesus wasn't just crucified. He didn't just die, verse 30, and following Jesus was raised from the dead. Verse 30, God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. This is the climax of Paul's message, the ultimate proof of Jesus' messiahship that Jesus is who he said he was, was because he did not stay dead. God is demonstrating everything Jesus claimed on this earth to be true because God raised him from the dead. The basic problem of sin, the resulting consequence of death, has now been solved because of Christ. It wasn't just that his body was dead removed from the tomb, Paul tells them that Jesus was seen. The reality of his resurrection was demonstrated by his appearance. And not only was Jesus seen, but the witnesses were still alive as Paul was giving this message. You could go to Jerusalem and you can find Peter, you can find John, and they will tell you that they have seen the resurrected Lord. The fulfillment of God's promises is found in Jesus' resurrection, verses 32 through 33. We declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children. Bringing back to their mind the covenant that God made with Abraham, just as God was faithful to that promise, He is faithful to the promises to us as well. In that he has raised up Jesus again. The news of Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul describes here as glad tidings. Now this is the first time in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, that we see the gospel being referred to as good news. And if you think about it, Israel religiously understood the problem of sin. They had been given the law of Moses, and they would try to keep the law, and they would fail. They would try to keep the law, and they would fail. And what did they then have to do because of their sin? They would have to go to Jerusalem, and they would have to sacrifice an innocent lamb Or an innocent cow. Or innocent birds. And they knew very well. That they had a problem with sin. And they knew very well that the blood of the bulls and the goats. Didn't completely erase that problem. Because they would continue to sin. And they would have to continue to sacrifice a new animal. But Jesus' death. Burial and resurrection fixes that problem. It is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. The good news is proclaimed to the Jews and God-fearers in Antioch, not just those in Jerusalem and Judea. And Paul goes and he proves from Scripture, using the Scriptures to explain why this had to be done. Going to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, It's written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The good news of the gospel is fulfilled in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Jesus is the son of David and the son of God. He is the Messiah and Savior of Israel, promised by God in the Old Testament. The good news is fulfilled in the promised seed of David going to Isaiah 55 verse 3 incline your ear and come unto me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you even the sure mercies of David God's promise to David of this Messiah coming from his lines is fulfilled in Jesus and the good news surrounds the resurrection of Jesus going to Psalm 16:10 Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. A little bit of argument from the negative. If Jesus' body is not decaying in the ground right now, there's only one reason for that. It's because he's not dead. It's because he is alive. And then Paul wraps it up in verses 38 through 41 with a call to repentance. Repentance. Offering forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Again, verse 38, be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren. So each of the sections of Paul's sermon kind of start off with this call to the listeners to pay attention. That through this man, which man? Jesus Is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. The good news that Paul and Barnabas proclaim in the synagogue in Antioch is the result of God's climactic intervention in the history of Israel, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, who is the Savior. It is a message that is relevant today, just as it was 2,000 years ago. And in these verses, we have Paul's first command. The first imperative that Paul gives says, Be it known unto you, or here's the command, Know that Jesus died for you. Know, not just having a head knowledge, but a personal knowledge. Understand that you can have forgiveness of sins through Jesus. That you don't have to keep going back to Jerusalem. You don't have to keep going back to the temple and sacrificing year after year after year to cover your sins. Because through Jesus, you can have forgiveness. Forgiveness. God's offer of forgiveness includes all things from which the law of Moses could not acquit. Noting that Paul in this sermon or Peter or Stephen didn't spend a whole lot of time explaining to their listeners that they were sinners. Because in that Jewish mindset, they knew that very well. They knew that they were sinners. They knew that they had to keep going and confessing those sins and having a sacrifice for those sins. But Jesus offers them something different, not just a covering of sin, but a forgiveness from that sin. God's offer of forgiveness means that God declares righteous or God justifies everyone who believes. In contrast to the Mosaic law, Romans 3.28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Or as we looked at and springboarded off of our Sunday school this morning, Galatians 2.16, a verse that meant a lot to Martin Luther as he began the Reformation, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The basis of God's forgiveness is twofold. The acquittal of the sinner has been made possible, Paul says, by him. It is by Christ we can have forgiveness. And the second aspect is that forgiveness of sins is open to all that believe. It's not just that the offer of forgiveness is going to be applied to all. But the offer of forgiveness is applied to those who accept it, to those who take it, to those who believe Only the forgiveness that Christ offers can free people from their sins. And we think, okay, Paul, you just gave the gospel call, okay? Repent and believe in Jesus, and now we'll go ahead and close in prayer and say amen. Paul doesn't stop there, okay? He gives a second command, a second imperative, a warning not to ignore the work of god beware verse 40 therefore lest that come upon you which was spoken of in the prophets behold ye despisers and wonder and perish for i work a work in your days a work which ye shall in no wise believe though a man declare it unto you paul's second command is very first command is believe in jesus and you will have forgiveness His second command is very simple. Don't reject this command. Rule number one, believe in Jesus. Rule number two, follow rule number one. Don't reject it. And he gives Habakkuk, he quotes from Habakkuk 1 verse 5 to demonstrate this and to bring this home. In Habakkuk, the prophet is asking the Lord, how long will I cry and God you won't hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. The prophet is crying out to God, God, how long are you going to let the wickedness continue? How long are you going to let your people turn from you and reject you? And God's answer is that he is about to bring judgment on Israel for their wickedness and their rejection of him, and I'm going to use the Babylonians to do it. And in Habakkuk's mind and in the mind of the Israelites, they would have been saying, wait a second, God, those Babylonians are really bad. Like, we've rejected you. We've turned from you. But the Babylonians, they are extremely wicked and vile. You can't judge us using an even greater, wickeder people. Pardon the English. And God then makes the promise in verse 5. God's answer is, don't scoff at it. Don't just sit there and stare. You won't even believe what's going to happen even if someone were to tell you. This doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem fair. God's answer indicates that he is not bound to by man's standard of fairness. He responds according to his sovereign will. And just as those in the days of Habakkuk would have been like, the Babylonians aren't going to do anything to us. And they perished. Paul is bringing at home those who reject Christ, those who scoff at this message of Jesus, this good news of forgiveness, They will likewise perish. So Paul's conclusion can just be summed up in these two commands. Understand, know that you can be justified, forgiven from your sins by the work of Jesus. And don't reject it. Don't scoff at this message. What are the results of this sermon? When the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached unto them the next Sabbath. Paul, come back next week. We want to hear more. The next week when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and the religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Many responded in obedience to the glad tidings of the gospel recognizing jesus can offer a forgiveness that the mosaic law can't that is good news the next sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of god these people didn't just hear the gospel and keep it in okay they didn't hide it under their bushel No, they got the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ came and died for my sins and I can have forgiveness and so can you. And what did they do? They went out and they told people. And the next Sabbath, the next week, almost the entire town shows up. Wouldn't that be wonderful? So who are we going to give the good news to this week? Well, almost everyone wanted to hear the good news of glad tidings. The Jews, when they saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and they spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. And a verse later, the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. Not because they could argue against the truth of the good news of the gospel, but because they were jealous that more people listened to Paul than them. So fast forward 2,000 years. What do we take away? How does this apply to us? First question that has to be asked, have you been justified from your sins based on the work of Christ on the cross? The offer is available if you only believe. And as Paul commands the church or the, in the synagogue here, do not reject this message. Secondly, for those of us who are saved, do we believe that the gospel is good news? Do we? No, we have no problem giving a great review for a restaurant we go to. We have no problem proclaiming that the bears are 3 and 0. And then they'll be like the Detroit Lions and go 0 and 17. We have no problem getting excited about the good news of a sports team. How much greater is the good news of forgiveness of sins? Are we sharing that good news? The response to the gospel will be mixed. There will be some who accept. There will be some who reject. But remember, it is not our words. It is the words of the Lord. That's where the power comes from. And understanding what people know about God's Word. You know, we're living in a day and age where culturally things in America are shifting from where when the majority of you, were my age, there was a little bit of morality in this culture where people understood right and wrong, and people at least had a reverence, if not acceptance, but they at least had a reverence of God to a culture where people don't seem to care. People don't know who God is. People don't know who Jesus is. So what do we do with a people who don't have a basis or a base knowledge in the scripture? That's next week. So next week, go to Frankfurt Fest early, Friday or Saturday. Make sure you're here Sunday night as we look at Paul giving the gospel to individuals who have no understanding of the scriptures whatsoever. Father God, we thank you for the good news. We thank you that you sent your son the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, the promises made to Abraham, to David, to provide for us justification, a forgiveness of the sins which we commit that the Old Testament law could not provide God, I pray that you would help us to not just sit on this good news, but to share it with those around us, those whom you bring into our path. We ask these things in the name of your Son, the promised Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.